Hi, I'm Rachel Aiello, and I'm filling in for Michael Stittle this week. And I'm Nick Nanos. And welcome to Trendline. This week, we are taking a look at the throne speech and the state of the opposition parties ahead of what could be a snap election. We're also wondering how are Canadians feeling about the state of Canada-US relations? We'll get to that a little bit later in the show. But first, uh, Nick, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spent the better part of this week huddled with his cabinet behind closed doors, trying to iron out what's going to be in their throne speech. It's going to kind of set the agenda for the upcoming session of Parliament, laying out their priorities. And uh, I think we could probably consider this a COVID throne speech. Um, of course, the last one they had got completely wiped away because of the pandemic and all of their priorities have changed. There's now a conversation about, will they do a guaranteed basic income or look to a green recovery? Is this the time for them to do massive social and economic change? Uh, but now we are facing, of course, this question of the second wave. We're seeing cases on the rise, and that's really refocused their attention. Here's a bit of what Trudeau had to say when he was asked about his current priorities. I said our focus right now is on the COVID crisis. We need to get through this in order to be able to talk about next steps. So, Nick, uh, when we talk about elections, we always talk about seats. Where do things stand in terms of the latest projections? You know, the interesting thing is, you know, Nanos does seat projections uh, every month. And when we crunch the numbers leading into the speech from the throne, about 71 out of the 338 ridings are too close to call. 28 of those are liberal, 28 of those are conservative. And what it speaks to, there's, there are a lot of ridings that have a very narrow margin that could realistically flip either way. If there was an election right now, it would basically be a coin toss, but the Liberals seem to have a greater number of seats in the bag than the Conservatives, but it's still up in the air. It's fascinating. And of course, a lot has changed already since the last election, pandemic aside, just politically speaking, uh, including with each of the opposition parties. So let's dig into a bit of where all of these of where all they stand ahead of the throne speech. I uh, think it makes sense. We can start with the Conservatives. So we know Aaron O'Toole is the new leader of the party. He came to power just a couple weeks ago. Uh, and he kind of has come quickly to introduce himself to Canadians and start to rejig his front bench. Uh, he won his new job promising to pick up seats in the GTA specifically. So uh, Nick, how key will it be to O'Toole's success in order to be able to pick up seats in Ontario? Well, the real battleground for, uh, for both the Liberals and the Conservatives is in Ontario. Uh, I think Aaron O'Toole's probably best path to victory at this particular point in time is to reconfigure the Harper Coalition, which was the West as a base, winning in Ontario and picking up some seats in Quebec. So right now for Aaron O'Toole, it's gonna be interesting because he is an Ontario-based uh, member of parliament. His father was an Ontario provincial member of parliament, so he has deep Ontario roots. The question is, how will he do in the 905? Because that's the key battleground. And the other thing that Aaron O'Toole has to battle is the fact that four out of every 10 Canadians do not have a formed opinion. And they'd say that they don't know enough in order to say whether they like or dislike the guy. So a bit of a blank slate. He's got to really act quickly and then make up people's minds there. Uh, and then that also brings us to Quebec. Uh, here's what O'Toole had to say this week when he was visiting the province about his plans there. I really do think that we've got a great caucus uh, from Quebec right now. I want to double or triple that caucus. And so we're going to work very hard to earn the trust of, of Quebecers. So Nick, is it possible for the Conservatives to make those kind of gains in Quebec? Well, anything's possible, but you know, what Aaron O'Toole would need is not just to do a good job and run a great campaign and improve his French. 
you'd need the new Democrats of the bloc to, to both blow up hypothetically at the same time. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that Ontario is probably more realistic for a breakthrough for the Conservatives than the province of Quebec, because, you know, the, the bloc are doing well, uh, the NDP are still competitive, and, you know, the Liberals are still doing reasonably well in the province of Quebec. So, Aaron O'Toole's ambitions in Quebec are understandable, but he might be overreaching himself with Ontario being a better and bigger prize for him. So when we talk about the bloc, uh, do they still have the hold that they had in 2019 in Quebec? Yeah, well, you know, the interesting thing about the bloc, they won, I believe, a little over 30 seats in the, uh, in the, in the previous election. In our projections, they've got 20 of those 30 seats in the bag, which means 10 of those seats that they did hold in 2019 are up in the air. Uh, but it looks like the bloc are, are, they want to have an election. They've been on the record signaling that they want to defeat the government and have an election. I think they believe that maybe some of those conservative seats might be up for grabs or some of those NDP seats. And, and it seems like a lot of the strength from the Bloc Quebecois has been through their leader, Yves-Francois Blanchet. Um, do you have any insight into how he is perceived amongst Quebecers? He's been a solid performer. And, you know, the thing is, is that he exceeded expectations in the 2019 election. And, you know, even among Anglophone voters and Canadians in the rest of the country, they saw Yves Blanchet and they kind of said, you know, looks like a solid guy. He's a separatist, but still fairly solid. So he really is the brand of the Bloc Québécois now. And what's interesting from a strategic point of view, it suggests that the Bloc are looking at the CAC party, the provincial government, as a model for picking up seats in Quebec where they're targeting those ridings where the CAC are strong and also kind of modeling themselves on the Lego strategy, which was very successful in the last Quebec election. Interesting. Uh, and so then we can pivot on to the NDP and leader Jagmeet Singh. Uh, of course, we've seen over the course of the pandemic, they've pushed policy ideas that eventually, in some cases, the Liberals have gone and done. Um, do Canadians now, with the pandemic and things being rethought in a lot of ways, have more appetite for the more progressive side of the NDP's ideas? And where does their base of support lay when they're facing a situation where uh, a lot of what they're calling for the government's doing anyways? Well, there's definitely more appetite for interventionist government policy and for progressive politics. The question is, does that mean that it's good news for the New Democrats? My sense is right now, and it's pretty clear that the Liberals are tilting to the left in order to be progressive and, and scoop up all of those progressive voters uh, in Canada and to basically try to look like, try to make the NDP look irrelevant. The fact of the matter is, is that the race right now is between the Liberals and the Conservatives. If the Conservatives look like they have a chance to win, that'll be bad news for Jagmeet Singh because some of his supporters, even though they like him, even though they're connected to the New Democratic Party, may drift to the Liberals in an attempt to block Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives. And I assume then the same situation would be facing the Green Party. Uh, they are in the middle of their own leadership race right now after Elizabeth May gave that job up after the last election. Uh, there are eight candidates in the race to become the next leader of the Green Party and voting on that race starts next week and results of the winner are expected to be announced on October 3rd. Uh, so I'm wondering from your perspective, how important is it going to be for the Greens to have kind of a fresh face and a, and a new perspective at the helm within a couple weeks from now? Well, I think it's an opportunity for them. You know, when we track every week and we ask Canadians whether they would consider or not consider voting for the Green Party of Canada, about three out of every 10 would consider. And that's actually quite, quite good for the Greens. I think for most Canadians, they're intrigued by the Green Party. They have a natural sympathy towards many of their uh, policies, but that uh, what, they, what they see, uh, they kind of like. So the big question is, will the Green Party select a leader 
that will connect with voters and reanimate the Greens as a relevant force. But they're facing a variation of the same kind of squeeze that the New Democrats are facing. You know, on the environmental front, you know, the Liberals are very progressive and advanced and believe in the environment and climate fighting climate change. And for a lot of those environmentally minded voters, they might like the Green Party, but realistically, they have the Liberals that they can vote for in order to enable a lot of those, a lot of those policies. Interesting. So I guess we'll kind of wait and see what the Prime Minister has in his throne speech and where he's trying to hit those pockets of support, uh, what boxes he's going to try to tick and where he's going to try to pick up votes. Um, but pivoting from that, speaking of climate change, Nick, I wanted to get your take on this. We saw uh, the US President Donald Trump this week speaking about what have been completely devastating wildfires in the west coast of the US. Uh, and he seemed to cast doubt on the science of it all. And here's what he had to say. But I think we want to work with you to really recognize the changing climate and what it means to our forests and actually work together with that science. That science is going to be key because if we if we ignore that science and sort of put our head in the sand and think it's all about vegetation management, we're not going to succeed together protecting Californians. Okay. It'll start getting cooler. <laughs> I you wish just, you just watch. I wish science agreed <laughs> with you. Hey, well, I don't think science knows actually. Tom. I don't think science knows. Uh, Nick, you have new numbers on Canadians' thoughts about the state of the Canada-U.S. relationship. What are they telling you? Well, you know, there, there are some key divergences and, and uh, key commonalities. You know, the interesting thing is that when we ask Canadians who the greatest health threat is uh, to Canada, the United States is at the top of the list. When we ask mm -hmm. Americans in a new study that we just released with the State University of New York who the greatest health threat is, it's not Canadians, it's China. So there's a complete divergence on that, which is why there's such a strong appetite in Canada to close the border. But where Canadian and American views converge relate to China itself, where now, uh, you know, Canadians and Americans both identify visitors from China as priorities for being asked for ID, for example. And uh, so we're kind of united by a common fear of the Chinese or concern and anxiety related to the Chinese, but divided on this pandemic because people in Canada see what's happening in the United States and they have significant concerns about the risks to Canadians because of the pandemic. Right, and then we saw again this week that the Canada-US border is likely going to be shut down for at least another month. Uh, and if this continues, probably a couple more to come. And it seems that, that way Canadians are still okay with it. I know there are challenges and complications, but I am curious to see how the perspective evolves between Canada and the US and the feelings Canadians have over the next couple months as we get through the presidential race and find out the results. Uh, also, of course, we should note that this week the Americans backed off of their tariffs of Canadian aluminum at the 11th hour, basically right before Canada was going to slap retaliatory tariffs on them. Uh, so, you know, the relationship there, complicated bit of an exchange of words continues. We'll keep that file uh, on our radars for sure. Um, but Nick, I just wanted to get lastly, what's your big takeaway this week? What should our uh, audience be thinking about in the weeks ahead? Well, we should be thinking about the upcoming speech from the throne and how progressive and how far the liberals reach through that progressive policy kind of planks that they have. And they have to watch out for a recoil effect because what we might see is that if the liberals go too far to the left, too much into the progressive kind of sphere, that Aaron O'Toole looks moderate where he says, you know what, let's focus on the economy and the pandemic. So watch out for the speech for the throne and how far the liberals decide to go on that progressive front. Awesome, Nick. Thanks so much. If our listeners or viewers want to read more about your latest work, where can they find you? 
uh, they can find me on Twitter at Nick NIK Nanos, or they can go to the Nanos website to get all that data, www.nanos.co. Great. And you can follow me on Twitter at Rachelo, and you can find Trendline on CTV News' YouTube page if you'd like to see some of the numbers and charts Nick was showing if you were listening to us on your podcast app. And again, thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.